Hi, this is Gary Rogowski for Splinters. Thanks very much for joining us. I'm delighted today to welcome Gary Chin of Garrett Wade Tools, a company that's been in my world since the 70s. Welcome, Gary. Thank you. When did the company start? 75. 1975. Seems like yesterday, doesn't it? <laughs> well, it's been, a, it's been uh, you know, when you start a company and pour your life into it, it it goes pretty quickly in a way, but I, you know, I can't believe 45 years ago. It's just awesome. It's been a, it's been a wonderful ride. When you started, were you selling just woodworking tools or were you selling this, the full range of stuff that you're selling now? No, just woodworking tools. Uh-huh. And were you, were you a woodworker? Yes, I am. Uh, a, a passionate one, not a skillful one, but a passionate one. If you're interested, I'll give you a little, little sort of 30-year history on how, sure. yeah. how I got into it. You know, I, when I say 30 years, I'm not talking 75. I'm talking back when I was 13 and 14 years old. I grew up in the sort of the early, early mid 50s, and secondary schools had manual arts experience, right? A pretty standard part of the curriculum, and that's uh, something that has totally disappeared in our culture now. I, I, I feel it's a huge loss because. Um, this wasn't this wasn't vocational training. This was just something other than academic training that to help uh, girls and boys, you know, maybe get a better sense of themselves and get some sense of accomplishment and what might interest them. And and right. so it was it was all about being a maker or gaining some personal skills, you know, usually hand hand work of one form or another. And so I had the the great fortune of. Uh, I say that literally because uh, it had, I, I never recovered from it. <laughs> I, I had the great fortune of having a wonderful shop teacher oh, nice. when I was 13, 14 years old. And uh, I, I remember his name, which is John Waddell, long since gone away, of course. Where was this? Excuse me. Cleveland, Ohio area. Uh -huh. It was sort of junior high school stuff. I don't quite know how it got started, but he, he, was, a, he was a great teacher. And a, and a great craftsman, and he loved to loved to stimulate his boys because it was just boys all at that point. It was only hand tool work, of course. We couldn't go anything with a near anything with a motor on it. Things needed to be done that required, you know, machining of one form or another. He 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 do that. Although I guess at the tail end of things, we were working with jigsaws, which is pretty hard to hurt yourself on. I made some really very nice stuff. My sort of Piece of resistance, you know, I made a footstool and things of leather tops, you know, that sort of stuff. But I, in the end, I made a, parents, I made a 30-inch diameter mahogany coffee table, had an inlaid veneer all around the top edge, about two inches wide. Uh, I scraped and beat all the way around. It was really a, a gorgeous piece of furniture, and to this day, it exists. And, oh, uh, cool. So when I, so I went on, you know, life went on, I went away to school, then went you know, went to college and the service and back to school. I never, ever lost my desire to replicate those wonderful experiences as a boy. I got to New York finally with my first job, not my first job, literally, that was the Navy, but uh, the first job in civilian life. I, I thought, gee, I wanted to get some tools together because I had zero. And I lived in a mid-block brownstone in Manhattan and my landlord who lived above me said he had some empty space in the basement 
you know, and I, I could build a, build a little shop there if I'd like. And he happened to be an industrial designer, so he was a he understood all this stuff. But I had nothing, maybe a pair of pliers in the kitchen drawer, you know. So, so yeah. I lived all over the place in in Manhattan and Brooklyn for the tools that I remember using as a kid. Right. And I could find almost nothing. And so I, I said, this is this is terrible. I'm really, I mean, I'm frustrated by it. You know, how, how am I going to solve this problem? And then through the grace of God, uh, I stumbled across something called the Whole Earth Catalog. Right, right. Almost predates me. But, <laughs> and in it, was a, in it was a little tiny ad from a company in Woburn, Massachusetts. Oh, called, right. Called Woodcraft Supply. Right. So I sent my 25 cents in at that point, got it, and there it was. It was all there. Of course, most of it came from Europe. And so I, I became a big, I became a customer. I even managed to find a, a German workbench in New York. I don't quite know how I stumbled across that. So I had something to work on. I bought a used Sears carpenter saw and and the circular saw, a little 10-inch thing, you know, very, very dirty and very old, yeah. and a couple other things. And, and you know, so I set out to make things of no particular quality, but just to keep myself busy and gain some experience. And so, you know, life went on in New York, a couple of different jobs. I ended up, and, and life found me down in the financial district, which sucks up a lot of uh, young people uh, as uh, worker bees. And... And I spent a couple of years there, and I really hated it. It was just, I thought it was a terrible business. And uh, I remember being on vacation. I'm not quite sure where it was, but having this idea all of a sudden. The question I put to myself was, I'd like to do something other than I was doing then, and I'd like to, maybe to work for myself, but what, what do I know? You know, what can I bring to the party and I thought to myself, well, I've got this enthusiasm and I know something about this and I have good instincts for it. And why not? Let's explore the idea. And at that point, you know, Woodcraft was really the only the only company that had uh, the kind of stuff I was looking for. But I remember having great trouble finding them. You know, they didn't uh, I stumbled across them. And I thought to myself, these guys are really not looking for customers very hard. Right. Gee, I thought that my my sophisticated market research was just, gee, you know, I, I had this I have this good feeling. You know, I'm in my mid thirties at this point. I bet you that a lot of other people that feel like I do. I just took that as an article of faith. And one of the things, of course, that was going on at this time, we were coming out of the sixties and the seventies, right. uh, turmoil, hippie woodworkers everywhere in the woods doing, you know, trying to find themselves. <laughs> And, you know, that was it, you know, but my market wasn't them. My market was guys like myself who were just white collar workers uh -huh. who maybe had something of the same experience I did as a kid. Right. And, and of course, manual arts training was beginning to disappear from, from the school curriculum everywhere. Uh, and of course, it eventually totally disappeared. But anyway, so I, I said, how do I get these things? How do I do this? So I being in New York had its great advantage of the fact that I, it was a it was a quick trip to any of the commercial attache uh, facilities. And there were great books full of all the companies that did this and that, this and that in Germany or England or wherever. So you can go and 
really research for yourself what was available. And I wrote uh, about 150 letters to people saying, would you be interested in selling into the U.S., etc.?" And eventually I quit my job and went to Europe for two months and just, really? visited, just visited factories. Wow. Which is a lot of fun. Yeah. And, and as well as enjoying Europe. And it came back and I said, oh, my God, this is such a risky thing to do. Can I really, <laughs> really do this? And, and I said, well, you know, OK, so I'll, I'll, I'll invest some money in some inventory that I think would be sort of the beginning core. It's probably pretty golden. You know, I could eventually sell it all one way or another. But uh, how am I going to reach my market? And I thought to myself, God, my customers are all over the place. You know, they're not. There's no concentration, concentrated pockets that I need to try to go after. I wouldn't have any idea how to do that. Anyways, that was sort of the, you know, the idea of doing a catalog was a natural thing at that point as the catalog because business was beginning to really grow in, this, in the country. Right. Found a wonderful designer to help me produce it and, and some other people to help me uh, organize. And uh, so produced a first catalog, which I think was 32 pages long. I think I mailed about 30,000 copies. I, I printed about 30,000 copies. I didn't mail anything because I didn't have any people to mail to. And there was one periodical, I think, outside of Post of Popular Mechanics, so that, which, which was sort of a woodworker's thing. Right. It was called American Woodworker. I, that can't be correct, but, I, but it was something like that. And it was very middle-brow, sort of uh, not, not very slick by any stretch of the imagination, but it took a half-page ad in it, and I got 5,000 requests. Wow. And I thought to myself, this is a winner. You know, it was, I was stunned by that. And so we mailed the catalog out and began to get business. This is late spring of 1975. And we just went on from there. The thing I, I wanted to do in this, in this mailing, this catalog, was to make everything really, number one, look good. I wanted people to see what, what they needed or what, what I was trying to sell them. So, so which made a lot of a lot of emphasis on the design and, and, the, and the graphics, and I was aided by my designer in doing that. But the other thing was I wanted to talk to people about why it was important, what they got themselves if they've spent their forty dollars or whatever it was. And so, since there were almost no books around or no magazines around, the, the writing was always very important. And I did it all, and it it was as you. At least 50% of the effort was educational, hmm. uh, and that continued relentlessly without any hesitation for maybe a couple of decades. Uh, in the meantime, of course, uh, some other companies or other people had the same kind of idea and started thinking themselves, and uh, some other, you know, some magazines, periodicals came on stream, the most, the most important of which was fine woodworking. I remember when Paul Roman, who was retiring from or leaving GE at that point, mm. to start Taunton Press, fine woodworking, which is the beginning of Taunton Press. He called me up and I think we were a tiny company. I don't I don't know how many customers we had, maybe maybe seven or eight hundred. And I make that up because I I don't remember, but it wasn't very many. And it was all manual of course. There was no computer involved or anything. And so he said to me, could I have my customer names promote the magazine. Absolutely. And his wife came down, Jan, and typed our entire customer list on three by five cards. <laughs> that, show, that's a, that shows you how sophisticated it was. So it went on. It's just uh, the thing that 
that was outside of stimulated people to, to have to dream like I did, have some confidence that they could, you know, give it a give it a try again if they remembered having good experiences. Well, educational stuff continued, but the thing that was most satisfying was the fact that we brought all kinds of stuff to the market simply by traveling a lot uh, and talking to a lot of people and beginning to go to shows, just taking advantage of, of uh, leads that I had, you know, through networking. Probably the most significant one of, one of that was was uh, the fact that a friend of mine who was a, a antique dealer in the sort of the high-end sense of things, who, who was also a very competent craftsman, said, you got to talk to a fellow named Tosho Adate, who works uh-huh. who's a, who's a teacher at at Pratt in Brooklyn, and we, we I didn't know anything about Japanese tools at that point. Right. And so I, I met with Tosho, and Tosho said, gee, we can do a lot here, you know? And he was anxious to promote the whole the whole area himself. It took off. That, and then, of course, it got into the eco machinery eventually, which we introduced in the U.S., uh, hollow square mortars machines, which came out of England, Europe. All these, all these sort of initiatives some of the things I'm most proud of because it really, it was all brand new. Right. None of it existed. I felt a lot of pride in bringing this all with, to my customers, you know, with great energy. I, I can say that. It's a uh, long story, but I. No, it's great. Great to hear. I can say that I started woodworking in after college. The magazine, the, the, the magazines that uh, I was reading then, I, I would lust after the Inca brand of tools. I never could afford them. But that mortiser on the back end of their table saw, I thought, oh, that is so cool. And I saw that Jim Krenoff had one. And I said, oh, I got to get one. I never got one. But uh, that Inca brand always was that. That was it for me. I was, I was very proud of that. You know, it was, a, it, it was a Swiss company. Yeah. And so it was expensive. They were just yeah. sort of getting around it. And, and they... They, you know, when we started, they really just had three machines, a little 10-inch, 10-inch bandsaw. Right. Which was actually driven by a power tool that you would tie into it. Really? Huh. A very small 7-inch circular saw and a jointer, a 7-inch or 7.5-inch jointer. was fairly small. The, the, the beds were probably only 30 inches long at, at best, mm-hmm. which had a, a head that you could, you could fit to it to turn it into a a fixer. Uh-huh. And that's all they had. They eventually, you know, produced some really wonderful stuff. Yeah. Bigger bandsaws. And the table saw ended up with a gorgeous 12-inch machine. Very sophisticated. Very sophisticated stuff. Safe, wonderful safety gear. Uh, nothing like the you know, saw stuff, of course. But, you know, in terms of guarding, it was really superb. And it was just really good. And precision was super. I ran into them in the show in, in Nuremberg, in Germany. And they were looking yeah. for to break out of Switzerland. So I was very proud of that. That was a huge effort, you know. And, and I think and that led us eventually to the hollow square mortises were made in England at that point. I loved those machines. They were just, they were so cool. All of it disappeared. Inca yeah. went out of business. They, they were sold to a French company that ultimately screwed it up. It's, um, but a lot of people remember them. Oh yeah, oh yeah. But think think about this just for a second. Here you you came out of the Navy trained as what? Uh, nothing. Okay. Nothing. So and then you you decide you don't like being down in the 
on Wall Street or wherever you were down there, and you're going to open a business. How hard is it to do that and survive? You think about Inca getting, you know, decimated by another company. It's hard. It was just, a, I got to tell you, it was a lot of luck. And the timing, the timing was really perfect. Yeah. Because it, it, it was a culture, it became a cultural thing. Right. Yeah, it really did. And my market was not young, younger folks. My market was people in their, really, as it turned out, family men, white-collar jobs, who wanted to have something in their lives that wasn't just pushing paper. Yeah, the craft revival really was a big deal for a lot, a lot of folks. It certainly was for me and inspirational and people, um, I mean, catalogs were one of the ways to learn yeah. and to get stuff. It, it was the right, it was the right way to do it because yeah. the market, you know, was, was utterly diverse physically. Although in the end, companies like Woodcraft developed doors you know, all over the country. You know, right. almost all major markets, but not not in the mid seventies. That's for damn sure. I wanted to ask you, besides everything, what's changed in woodworking tools? My goodness. Well, that that's an important question for me because I was, you know, I have to say, I was a I was a hand tool guy. Love the machinery. I, I love the good machinery. You know, we tried to sell handheld you know, port of cable stuff and, you know, other people use these things. They will try to sell them too or make them available. It was, it just, it didn't work. There was something missing there. That seemed to be something that was made more sense to get locally. So I was, I was a hand tool person. It got, got us into the finishing business in a big way for a long time because we discovered Balin Brothers right. in, in New York State. But I, I love that part of the business because it was so... It was so difficult for people to, to really understand how to handle it, right. and, and, and rightfully so, because it could be really tricky. The educational part of that was really superb. It was wonderful to talk to people about their problems, because you you learn something and you'd be able to share experiences that other people had the same in the same area. But time went on, you know, and there were other companies that were like Woodcraft and wonderful places like Chris Bagby's Island Hardware got started and, and Rockler got started. And and I, I think some of the, a little bit, to a certain extent, a little bit of the steam went out of the cultural connection or the historical cultural connection and seemed to increasingly be important to the people who are doing uh, in the woodworking business was power tool work. And so, and, and jigs and fixtures became, a, became an increasingly big deal. Right. And they did nothing for me. I just, it just, I couldn't, I didn't feel I could bring anything to the party there. Right. It just didn't, I don't know, it just didn't connect. So the, the, the simple idea was to say, well, you know, we've got a lot of sort of middle-aged, early middle-aged men, you know, what are they, you know, what appeals to them besides who, who are woodworkers, mostly, mostly amateur woodworkers? What, what, what appeals to them? Uh, and we tried some, some screwball kinds of ideas. Oh, you got to tell me, like what? I can't, can't remember. It was, it was <laughs> All of a sudden, it occurred to me that what these people were, for sure, was homeowners. Right. That got us into the gardening area. That is, as the woodworking area began to be less vigorous, that began to, to really fill the, the void for us. It certainly continued to grow, continued to grow vigorously ever since. When you were designing the catalog, I, I know you mentioned you had 
designer help you out. But there's a look and a feel to the Garrett Wade catalog. Is that a very conscious thought on your part? Yes, it was. I I think I wanted it to be classy. Right. You know, to look look good. I wanted it to, to read well. I wanted it to be really literate. And as much as anything else, I wanted the objects in it, whether it was a set of chisels or, or Japanese saw or whatever, I wanted it to be clear what it was and to be able to describe it in writing so that the customer, you know, had total confidence what he was trying to accomplish. Right. We put a lot of effort into to styling. Right. Not because we were trying to be stylish, but because we felt that was the best way to exhibit. Yeah, that's really clear. I mean, the Garrett Wade catalog to me always had that sense of of style, as you put it. It wasn't stylized, but it it spoke of a certain approach. So let me ask you this. Your customer base has changed, I assume, now since you're yeah. doing more gardening. So there's more more women involved in your customer base. Uh, I think that's certainly true, but a lot of men, too. You know, yeah. It's really a family thing. One of the things that we ended up doing was is doing a, a really quite significant amount of our business in the holiday gift periods from October through the end of December. And there are, there our are focus is really is, is gift giving. Right. I wanted to get to this. Were you selling comfort or craftsmanship? What big ticket item do you think the brand was selling? Certainly quality, certainly quality. uniqueness, mm-hmm. enthusiasm. And a, a significant amount of aspiration. Right. Aspiration in a very functional sense. You know, I wasn't, it wasn't aspiration to look good or aspiration right. to be slick looking or wear good colors or whatever. It was, it was all, it was all functional. If things had to function in a way, brought something special to the offer. Right. Yeah. I was wondering about the crossover to someone like Calvin Klein that sells everything under the sun now for style. You know, from perfumes to bedroom furniture to, you know, blankets and underwear. and But it's all under this one umbrella of his brand. And I've always felt we had a, you know, Garrett Wade had a brand. I was, I was always and still am proud of the brand. But to me, it's really something that represents a confidence in the offer, not in, you know, that, that's not superficial. Right. Brand as a brand, I think, doesn't really stick goes very far unless there's something substantive behind it. And if it's got substantive stuff behind it, people will have confidence in it. People will pay attention to it. I, I'm sort of proud of Garrett Wade as a brand, but the, the fact that it's a brand, that I don't think means anything to me. Right, I get it. Nowadays, you're faced with a different kind of branding. I mean, you think about Amazon and all they sell is convenience, right? <laughs> Do they sell something else that I that I miss? No, I, they sell I, everything. That's it. They sell absolutely everything. And I use them and I don't like it, but there it is. I, I, I do too. And I don't I don't really like it, but I also feel that the really the accomplishment is stunning. Oh, it's taken over the world. There's no question about it. It's taken over the world. I uh, was a furniture maker for 25 years and then started teaching. Uh, one of the problems I always had as a furniture maker was underestimating the time for a project that was coming up. Because I was always taking on stuff that was going to teach me something. What, what have you underestimated? So was there something in the business or something that took, caught you by surprise? Or I, I think the the ability to for the business to, to continue to innovate is hard because things things change. So much, yeah. And sometimes sometimes you get blindsided 
in the bad way, and sometimes you get blindsided in a good way. I mean, this, right. our experience during this during this pandemic has been stunning. I mean, it, it really we're, we're busier now than we've ever been. No kidding. Uh, and, and, <laughs> no, wow. so it's Home Depot. You know, it's not. Yeah. There was a period in latish part of March where you know everything was beginning to go to hell in the handbasket, and I thought, oh my God, everyone's going to just pull in their horns, go to ground, and. Um, you know, our business is going to suffer as a result because they're going to be disturbed or unhappy and confused and, and all that kind of stuff. So, and there was a, a short, really short period of time where I saw it begin to happen in sort of mid late March. And then come the month of April, and it just, it just turned and flipped. What was happening was what, like in smarter, I would have anticipated. People were getting stuck, but they were deciding they weren't going to get stuck and, and do nothing. And right. Advantage of the situation. People, you know, companies that were in our sort of area, things that help people do other things that were physical, their hands, mm -hmm. saw an increase in activity. So certainly that was unexpected. That's because I didn't have any basis to have any other expectation. No, no one had a clue how to hand, handle this stuff. Good, that's good. But sometimes, you know, like what we faced in the in the sort of mid '80s to late '80s, you know, where the market was beginning to become more difficult to, to grow for us. Not only was there competition that was certainly legitimate and part of the way things always go, the the fact that the market, the interest in my customers was was going in an area that I really could not bring anything to the party for beginning deciding how to continue to change and seek new opportunities to seek new innovate and changing the business that's that's tough yeah unless you fall into it in this case i didn't fall into it it took us probably seven or eight years to really get any focus on it i imagine the demand is going to remain for small items tools this sort of stuff i i think so i i one of the things that you know our business has developed Outside of the, the holiday period for where we do a huge amount of business for toys, mm -hmm. business has become importantly gardening and outside work, including woodsman's kind of work, right. uh, general shop work, just DIY stuff that everyone does. Right. Right. Former, certainly a, a homeowner and who's had, of course, more time the last three or four months to do that. <laughs> right. And to a relatively more minor extent, you know, our traditional woodworker, furniture maker, carver. So I, I think that there's, uh, I think that there's something going on there. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think it's going to be anything like the sort of explosion, if I use that sort of term, in the uh, mid to late 80s and the uh, mid to late 70s and into right. the middle late 80s, as you certainly experienced just as much as yeah. But it's there anyway. M making these searches... And we're, we're sort of stunned by the fact that it's it's steady, steadily growing the way it does. Right. And this is not this, I'm not talking about stuff that's happened in the last two or three months. It's been going on for about six months, seven months, eight months. Yeah. Was, I mean, this is something we know something about. And for me now, the, the tricky thing is okay. So what we're going to sort of go back to the future here and begin to pay more attention to our historic roots. But how should we do it? What should we pay attention to? That's the question I'm trying. I'm struggling with myself right now. I'm thrilled by that idea. It's just, it's great. I know there's a much greater interest in in woodworking in general, but the idea of quality, I think, has suffered a little, and I'm a little concerned about losing that sense of the need for it. I mean, I think there's, you know, some 
companies out there, some woodworking companies that have shown that you can create a high-priced item, but if it's good quality, it, there's value there. It's worth it. But I just wonder about the, the nature of quality and whether fine furniture making will still be with us or whether it will be some sort of dumbed-down version of it, and that's my concern. I don't have an answer to that. I agree with you. You know, a lot of the, the you know, the stuff that we were selling or finding and, and bringing to the market in the 70s and, and 80s was really the best we could find. Anyway, really damn expensive. Someone's got to be a little, little bit nuts to, you know, pay $80 for a beautiful Japanese chisel. That's probably a little bit of an exaggeration, but they were, you know, they were hugely more expensive than, you know, even the best English stuff. But the people wanted them, you know. I guess pride you know, to a certain extent, but they really, they were beautiful tools. Yeah. So the Japanese saws, for example, I think are superb. But you right. can pay all all the way from 2X to 5X. Right. 15X. 15X. Uh, yeah. The same approximate function. That's uh, true. Well, I, th I think people realized that it wasn't just about building stuff. It was about the time you spent at the bench. That's that was valuable, too. That's true. Absolutely true. Certainly the uh, people who were desperate for expanding their lives in the 70s and 80s that way. That was what was driving them. And rightfully yeah. so. Yeah. But they needed it. And, of course, I, I, every time I think of the fact that manual arts training has, was, has been stripped out of secondary education, you know, it makes me so angry. That was such a bad idea. You know, well, but, it's a stupid idea because it's, I think it's, it should be required for all levels of our society. Be working with your hands, whether it's woodworking or home crafts or sewing or whatever. It's all good. Yeah. There's, it makes a connection that the computer does not make for you. And that is between your hands and your dexterity and your brain and what that does for you inside and a sense of accomplishment and all that. I think Garrett Wade has done its share of showing people how that, how important that is. Well, I used to advertise in my, my school, I used to advertise my school in Fine Woodworking Magazine, and I would always remind myself that someone said this once, that half of your advertising dollar is wasted. You just don't know which half. That's, I know, that classic, classic. <laughs> and nowadays, you know, all this advertising is done in Google searches and all that stuff. Now, you know what you need? You need to get that Garrett Wade catalog in a movie. Get, the, get, the, get that catalog on someone's coffee table in a movie because that you know, all that brand placement stuff happens now so it's fun when i get to chat with people who have had a, a big influence um directly or indirectly on my world and you've had a direct influence on my world so i thank you for that yeah, yeah, I'm proud of it. And thank you thank you for saying that i it's been a lot of fun yeah well lucky you to be lucky to be in the right spot at the right time. That's great. That was that was just total luck. Well, luck can work. That's a good thing. My you know, my own mantra has always been that I've got to I've got to bring somebody to the party. If I if I can't bring somebody to the party, it's a so so what, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I I get that. You've mentioned that a couple times. Desperately trying to bring somebody to the party. And I believed in it and you know, it worked. Clearly it worked. Well, thanks very much for spending the time with me and chatting. This was a lot of fun. Oh, Gary, I enjoyed it myself. Thank you. This has been Gary Rogowski for the Northwest Woodworking Studio. Thanks for joining us on Splinters. Appreciate it. And thanks to Gary Chin for talking with me about his company and the Garrett Wade catalog. It's GarrettWade.com. Go check it out. And please check out our website, NorthwestWoodworking.com. 
Uh, if you like what we're doing here, you can support me on Coffee, kofi.com. And please check out our other podcasts and our online mastery program, which is going to start up a new version in January of this year. Go to our website, northwestwoodworking.com, to get more information on that. All right, stay safe. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.